Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 9th, 2018. The share IDs for Friday, September 7th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11,888. That's 11888. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11,891. 11891. This morning, A Vision for You presents Taking the Mystery Out of Step 4. In Step 1, we conceded powerlessness, the realization that we are doomed. Lack of power is our dilemma. In Step 2, we learned that our higher power, which is deep down within us, was blocked off from us because of calamities, pomp, and worship of other things. In step three, we made a decision, a decision to place our will and our lives into the care of our higher power by proceeding with the work of the steps. The fourth step brings us to a specific course of action that strengthens the decision we made in the third step and helps us carry it out. According to the big book, unless we make a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us, our decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God can have little permanent effect. Here to speak about taking the mystery out of step four is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Arizona, sweltering Scottsdale, that is. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, intensively working with other compulsive overeaters, and dedicated to carrying this message of recovery. And as always, welcome to the line, Harlan G. Thank you very much, Leah. I'm very honored to be of service this morning, Um, and, and thank you for your service for making this magnificent meeting possible today. Um, as Leah just told you, I'm Harlan G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in indeed Scott, uh, sweltering Scottsdale, Arizona, where it was only 108 yesterday. So in order to look at step four, we're going to just kind of look at step at chapter five. We're going to look a little bit at step three. And in order to take out the mystery, we're going to put in a little history. And step five was a chapter that was written after much consternation about how to present the actual program of action. Steps one and two are conclusions of the mind. And step three, as we're going to review this morning, is a decision. But the rest of the steps had to be codified. The rest of the steps had to be explained. And the first four chapters and the doctor's opinion were in the books. They were fought over. They were done. And Bill Wilson was nocturnal at this stage of his life. The book was written in 37 and 38, published in April of 39. And in about 1937, at the end of the year, 1938, the beginning of the year, Bill had settled into more of a nocturnal lifestyle. He was up all night and slept all day. It was the height of the depression. He wasn't working. He had just gotten sober in December of 1934. So work was not something that was part of his daily routine much at all. And um, he was up 
and he had his legal pad with him in bed. And a pencil was next to him, and he started writing. And he said that it was as if the pencil had a mind and life of its own. And in less than 20 minutes, he wrote one of the most impactful pieces of spiritual literature inside the, one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature ever written, and that was Chapter 5 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the fight was on because the original words that he used to describe some of the things were of much controversy, to say the least. And the fight was on. And the Akron groups wanted more God. Like, we want more cowbell, they wanted more God. And the New Yorkers, they wanted less God. They wanted more of a psychological approach. And as I say, the fight was on. Where did a lot of this information come from? Well, it came from Sam Shoemaker. And who was Sam Shoemaker? Sam Shoemaker was the minister at the Cavalry Mission in New York City, and he was an Episcopal minister, and he was the front man for the Oxford group in New York. And most of these New Yorkers held him in great esteem. And Sam Shoemaker taught the boys that there were four impediments to God. Now, what is an impediment? An impediment is something that stops or slows progress. Now, from the common sense of drinking, Bill learned uh, the Common Sense of Drinking was one of the source volumes of this big book. The Common Sense of Drinking was written in 1931 by Richard Peabody. And Richard Peabody got a lot of things right about alcoholism. So influential was Peabody and the book The Common Sense of Drinking that Bill Wilson's copy of this book is in the AA archives. But what did, what did Richard Peabody get correct? That this is a permanent, progressive, fatal illness. Permanent, which means it is not curable. Progressive, meaning it gets worse over time. And <clears throat> excuse me, permanent, progressive, and fatal, that it will kill. From other sources, the book of James, from other sources like um, uh, the, the, the Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, Bill Wilson learned that there were people who had great calamity in their life, great catastrophe in their life, but by finding God, by finding a spiritual answer, they could overcome great difficulty. And putting this together, he learned and knew that we have an illness which only a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience will conquer. Now, I never had a spiritual experience, but I've had a spiritual awakening. A spiritual experience is sudden, profound, like lightning striking. I never had that. But if we look at page 43, and we look at page 43, it says to us there that only a spiritual, his, excuse me, his defense must come from a higher power. The last sentence of the chapter, more about alcoholism, the very last sentence is his defense must come from a higher power. Let's go back to Shoemaker. 
Shoemaker taught the boys that there were four impediments to God. And Bill knew that they were going to need to get to God if they were going to overcome alcoholism. The first impediment is a resentment I will not let go of. A resentment that I will not let go of. We're going to be talking about that in step four. A secret I will not tell, step five. A vicarious thrill, lying, stealing, gossiping, cheating, step six and seven. A vicarious thrill that I will not stop, step six and seven. And a restitution that I will not make, steps eight and nine. Let's focus in on the first of those for this chapter, a resentment I will not let go of. That's one of the reasons that you have this chapter as it's laid out. But we're going to look at how it works, and I'll go as quickly as I can through step three and try to concentrate on simplifying step four. What my purpose is this morning, why I'm here this morning, is to help anyone that is confused by, by step four. There is nothing here that should be confusing. As a matter of fact, I don't like to give the Yiddish word of the day so early in on the presentation, but I must today, and I'll try to repeat it. But the Yiddish word of the day today is ungeblosen. And ungeblosen means overblown, overdone. Overblown in Yiddish is ungeblosen. And we're going to try to take that out of step four today. And we're going to see how simple it really is. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. I'm not a believer in cannot. I am a believer in will not. Don't call me and tell me you cannot put the food down because I won't believe you. Don't waste your time. You are powerless, but you're not helpless. You put it down for several days before. It's called being on a diet, and we've all been on them. So don't tell me you cannot. Now tell me you will not, and now I'll believe you. Now I'll believe you. Those who cannot or will not <clears throat> excuse me, give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Honest with themselves about what? About whether or not they are compulsive overeaters. Because this is something that we are going to keep going back to because we have a mental blank spot which makes us forget these things. We have a built-in forgetter. And there's really only one way I know to remember that I am a compulsive overeater, and that is to teach it to others incessantly throughout my life. Because if I stop teaching others that I am a compulsive overeater, I'm going to forget. Now, what is a compulsive overeater? A comp and we're, this is not the last time we're going to talk about this this morning. But a compulsive overeater has two components to it. Number one, a physical allergy, which makes it impossible for that person to stop eating once certain ingredients or foods are ingested. It's an actual physical craving for more of the same. And there are 
Oreo cookies or ice cream or what have you, where if I ingest these foods, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it's just endless. And in a normal person's body, those foods do not create an actual physical craving for more. They can eat seven French fries and call it a day. I cannot. If I eat one French fry, I'm going to eat as many of them as I can get my hands on and then some, and I'm going to go to other foods and sugar and salt and other things. The more I eat, the more I want. That's the physical allergy. Plus a mental twist, a twist of the mind that drives me into the food irresistibly against my will. And we're going to be talking about that this morning too. We're going to talk about that because it's vital to our survival. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Now, honesty, again, about what? And I hate to sound redundant, but we keep seeing this word because Bill knew and God knew that this is something that is vital to our survival. Now, I could ask you honesty about what, and you could give me the standard answer, honesty about everything. And that's a true answer. I could not mark that wrong if I was a teacher. But the real thing that we're talking about again is, do you know in your heart that you are, if you are, I don't know that you are, if you are a compulsive overeater, do you have this allergy? Do you have this twist of the mind? Because if you do, you don't have another way out of it. There is no door number three. There's two doors in front of me every time I wake up in the morning. One door to relieve the pain of not eating, and we're going to get to that in a minute, I promise you, is mark eat the food. And that will work. That's worked like a charm over the years. But it has fatal, death-defying side effects. And the other one is work the steps, which has rewards and promises and a life beyond imagination but it's going to take some work. We're going to get into this compulsive overeating, and we're going to look at where it comes from in just a minute here. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. God, you're going to hate me, but honest about what? Honest about the fact that you are or are not a compulsive overeater. And the depths at which you accept the doctor's opinion will mark the urgency with which you will work the rest of the steps. If you haven't accepted the doctor's opinion and you haven't accepted the information in Chapter 1, Bill's story, Chapter 2, There is a Solution, and Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, specifically page 30, then there's no reason for you to do any of this. You, you just won't see the need. And that's why a lot of people fall down in step four. They just simply don't see the need. And the way to see the need is to look at those chapters, and if you identify in, to understand that there's no way out but this way. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. 
that is from William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. William James wrote a book in the early 20th century. He was a psychologist. He wrote the book for psychologists. It's hard reading. But in that book, he tells the story of many, many, many people who had horrible catastrophes in their life. They found God and they changed. They were altered by spiritual methods. And that's why in our book, we have stories at the end of the book. And these stories are there because of the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Let's look at that for just a minute, if you'll let me. If you've decided you want what we have, stop right there. What do we have here? Why are you on the line this morning? Why are you coming to OA? Why are you doing what you're doing? What do we seem to have that you want? Now, the answer that I gave was you're not compulsively overeating. And that's true to some degree with some of you. You're not compulsively overeating. Some of you may be. I don't know. This isn't like romper room where I can hold up my mirror and say, I see Fred and I see Joe. <laughs> Remember that show? I'm showing my age here. But anyway, if you've decided you want what we have, what do we have here? We have a group of people that are not compulsively overeating. That's only part of it. Because I could go to Dunkin' Donuts right now, and there are people sitting there reading the newspaper that are going to eat one donut and have their cup of coffee, and they're done. They're done. They're not compulsively overeating. What we have here, I hope, are people who are compulsive overeaters who are not compulsively overeating and who are doing so happily. They are happy in their release. And you can hear it on the line every day that there are people coming on this line in a vision for you, which is the renaissance of OA, the rebirth of OA, in my opinion, and I've only been around almost 40 years. There are people on this line who are not compulsively overeating, who have this disease, and they are doing so happily because they're working the steps and are willing to go to any length to get it. Is there something you won't do to recover? Because if there is, I can't, we can't help you. This has to be the number one thing in your life. This is a fatal illness. And as such, it requires everything you have to get to God so you can have a spiritual awakening and be released from the desire to eat. For 19 and a half years, I have not eaten compulsively. And I have done so happily. Abstinence won't get that for me. Nothing will get that for me but a spiritual awakening as the result of working these steps. Then you dash new thought, then you are ready to take certain steps. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, 
then you are ready to take certain steps. I consider that to be step zero. That's the launching pad. Some of these we balked. What is balked? We hesitate. We thought that we could find an easier, softer way. Good luck. But we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, what is earnestness? Earnestness is another word for honesty. Bill went to writing classes before he started the book, and the writing class that he went to taught him, don't keep using the same word again and again and again and again. So instead of honesty, which he's already used a bunch of times, he puts in the word earnestness at our command. It's the same thing as honesty. We beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Do you notice what word is missing? Fearless and thorough are very good words, but what's missing is the word perfect. And that word perfect, if he wanted it in there, he would have put it in there. And that's what stops a lot of people in their tracks when they want to do step four. Listen, God's not going to put your fourth step on his refrigerator. We've got to stop trying to do it perfectly. We got to, that's, that's myth number one that we're going to dispel this morning, and it's right in front of us. It says, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. He didn't put the word in perfect and molecularly sound or whatever, you know. He didn't put it in there because it's not necessary. Now, am I telling you to deliberately leave out your resentment against Charlie Brown or Lucy or Schroeder? No. No. But let's get rid of this conception of perfection. And that conception of perfection has dashed more compulsive overeaters onto the rocks than just about anything else. I want to do it perfectly. Good luck. Good luck. The reason that the word perfect is not in there is because he didn't want it in there. Very important. That's, the, that's myth number one about step four that we're going to blow out of the water this morning. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. I have to be in recovery or I'm not in recovery. Now, here is the part where there is some black and white thinking, but I don't want to confuse you. But here is the part where I'm black and white thinking. I'm either going to let go of these ideas or I'm not. And the result was nothing. Nil means nothing until I let go absolutely. That is a part where you've got to do everything you can to let go of these old ideas. And what are these old threadbare ideas? The old threadbare idea of I'm going to be abstinent six days a week, but on Sunday I'm going to eat everything I want to. The old threadbare idea of I'm going to a wedding and, of course, I have to have a piece of cake. The old threadbare idea of the holidays are coming, so I have to eat such and such. Or the old threadbare idea that the Cubs lost a doubleheader yesterday, so I deserve a Butterfinger bar. No. They did lose a doubleheader yesterday, and I've already cried my eyes out. Trust me. Trust me, I cried my eyes out. That lead is getting down to nothing, and I know we're all sad about that. But it doesn't mean I have to eat over it. Remember that we deal with alcohol. 
cunning, baffling, powerful. A sponsee asked a sponsor, what is the most important word in that sentence, sponsor? And the sponsor said, well, what do you think is the most important word in that sentence? And he says, well, cunning, no. Baffling, no. Powerful, no, no. He said the most important word in that sentence is remember, remember. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one, capital, who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. How am I going to find him? I'm going to work this step. Half measures availed us nothing. If love is a reed, then recovery is a vending machine. I know that's a little odd analogy, but it really is. I, I can't think of a better analogy than recovery is a vending machine. Now, don't tell me, don't tell that lie that you don't know how to binge at a vending machine because it's beautiful because it's anonymous. I don't have to order from the waitress and have her look at me like I've got three heads. I love the good vending machine. Oh, my God. Oy, 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 did I love a good vending machine. But let's take a look at that analogy of the vending machine. And there's a product in that vending machine I better adjust for inflation. I used to use a quarter. I better use $2. There's a product in that vending machine that costs $2. I put in $1.99 in the vending machine. What am I going to get out of it? Garnished. Nothing. I'm going to get bupkis, a kadochis. Nothing. Those are all Yiddish words for the same thing. Nothing. I'm going to, I'd be lucky if I get my $1.99 back. I have to put in the $2 or I get nothing. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Abandon of what? The old ideas. Now, let's not go through these steps and read them. We know them. We can read them on our own. Let's go to page 263 in the fourth edition, if you would. 263 in the fourth edition, if you're following along at home. Let's take a look at the six-step Oxford Group program, and let's take a look at what the guys were doing prior to the volume coming out that we're holding in our hands. Number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Number three, moral inventory. That's going to be the subject of our fourth step. Five, confession, step five. Five, restitution, eight and nine. Six, continued work with other alcoholics, 10, 11, and 12. These were the six steps that they were using before the book came out. And people said, we have a six-step program. What are, you, what are you monitoring with it for? What are you bothering with it for? Leave it alone. And he said, I've got to close some of these loopholes. And there were also the four absolutes. And these guys were having problems being anything like absolutely anything. Well, the four absolutes were absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute love, and absolute purity. And these guys were just trying to hold it together for one more day, being absolutely sober. Let's go back to page 60. We're not going to read through the 12 steps. It's a waste of time. Many of us exclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. 
Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. Oh, so there's this word perfect, and he's telling you no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. It is one in the same. You've got this mishigas going on now. The principle of this is this, and the principle... That is not what Bill intended. He uses the word principle as a synonym for the word steps. And then we made it into something other than what it is, and, and, and we made it into uh, a whole other thing here. We are not saints. The point is we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles, the steps we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. I have uh, 19 and a half years. Doesn't mean I deserve a boutonniere. Doesn't mean I deserve a Dick Tracy decoder ring. It just means I have 19 and a half years. But I've been in here for 40 years, so you can do the math. Things change over time. Things become apparent as we peel the onion. Trust the process. Stop looking for perfection and work as hard as you can. There's nothing in this book that says, now you've arrived, you get exactly what you want, and life is going to be perfect. There's nothing in here that says that. That's one of the reasons that step four is where a lot of people dash on the rocks. They do the step, and life still isn't perfect. There's no promise in here that it will be. I still got these focaccia allergies, and it was 108 here yesterday. My Nitsunum should be in such heat in September. Anyway, our description of the alcoholic, what is the description of the alcoholic? The description of the alcoholic is in the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism. And in these chapters... I know you've heard me say this before. I don't want to be boring. I just want to reinforce because I know that the mental blank spot, since I said it like five minutes ago, most of you have already forgotten it, and I have too. This description of the alcoholic, I either identify in or I don't identify in. If I identify into the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism, then I have an illness which is permanent, progressive, and fatal. And the only answer that I have is a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. The chapter to the agnostic, step two. So step one is a conclusion of the mind that I either identify in with or I don't. I either identify in with or I don't. And, step, and, cha and the chapter to the agnostic, there's going to be two things in there that I better keep with me for the rest of my life. Number one being, the main object of this book is to help me find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. That's the thesis line of the big book. It's on page 45, middle of the page. The main object of this book is to help me find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Not problems, but problem. 
And if that's the main object of this book, it better be the main object of my life. And there's something else in there on page 47. It says, do I believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? Do I really believe, as I look at Lake Michigan, as I look at the skyline of Chicago, as I look at Illinois in the fall, I look at Illinois in the spring, or I look at Arizona, do I really believe that I have created all this that existed for millenniums before I was even born and will exist for millenniums after I am dust in the wind? Am I so pompous, am I so full of myself that I can't conceive of a power greater than myself? I hope not. It is not required that I believe a certain God or a certain religious deity, and if that's what works for somebody, that's fantastic. All that's required of me is that I believe that there is a power greater than myself. That's all that's, that's all that's required of me. There's nothing more. And if I can conceive that I am not the highest power in the universe, now I have somewhere that I can do business with. I have a starting point on step two. And our personal adventures before and after made clear three pertinent ideas. These ABCs are essential to my survival. They are important, and I'm going to discuss them. That we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. What does that mean to be an alcoholic? Don't stop me if you've heard this before. It means that I have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. And the twist of the mind emanates not from a desire for food. The twist of the mind emanates from the buildup of everyday human emotion. Food is not the problem. I can dispel people that think food is not, I can dispel that myth, not the people. I can dispel that myth in six seconds. If food was the problem, treatment centers would turn out 100% winners, and they don't. If food was the problem, diets would work, and they don't. If food was the problem, hospitals would turn out winners, and they don't. If food was the problem, then willpower would work, and it doesn't for us. Food is not the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. And if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem, excuse me, is the buildup of everyday, normal, human emotion. Now, all human beings have fear and happiness and anger and jealousy and regret and resentment and remorse and shame and guilt. All human beings have these emotions. And in a normal human being, these emotions are dissipated easily by simple methods, going to the gym, driving out a bucket of balls, getting a glass of wine, talking to a friend, whatever. They are dissipated very easily. But in us, 
they create pain that is in in, in, in measure that is it's unbearable. And the pain of not eating is so great that we can't stand it anymore. And eating becomes preferable. And the mind learns at an early age, eat the Oreo cookie. And the brain says, don't you dare eat the Oreo cookie. And the mental twist says, eat the Oreo cookie. And the brain says, no. And the, 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 the mental twist says, do you want to feel like this? You deserve an Oreo cookie. You need an Oreo cookie, and you eat one. And you're looking for the effect. Dr. Silkworth says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. What is that effect? It, that effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating that sugar. And it feels fantastic for about eight seconds. And the brain says, see, I told you. I told you I could do this if you just listen to me and eat the Oreo cookie. Only the problem is about 10 seconds in, the pull of the horror of what I have done is upon me. And I have also triggered the physical allergy. And the allergy makes it impossible for me to stop. And I eat way more Oreo cookies than I had intended. And Doritos. And everything else that isn't nailed down. And I have done it again. I have passed through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to do this again. Now, if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, I am powerless over food and my life's unmanageable. I ask people that I sponsor, take a look at this. We admitted we were powerless over our human emotions and our food has become unmanageable. This is a deadly disease. And I must, in A, understand that I have it. Otherwise, why would I go through all the work? B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. Now, I know I'm going in pretty good detail here, and I know that the time is going, but I'm going to rush this as much as I can. But this is vital information for step four and vital information for the rest of my life, that no human power could have relieved my alcoholism. Now, I'm going to mention some names here. And if you don't know who they are because you're too young, you can Google them. James Gandolfini, John Candy, Mama Cass Elliott, Karen Carpenter, Fatty Arbuckle, President William Howard Taft, Chris Farley. Those are all people that are dead of this illness. Every one of them taken out at a young age too, too early by this illness. Karen Carpenter was 34 years old. She was 94 pounds when she died of anorexia and bulimia. John Candy and Mama Cass were 400 pounds when they died. And they left us too young, too young. They had it all. The fame, 
the wealth, the talent, the accolades. They had it all. It didn't save him. They're dead as doornails. Because this disease is no respecter of race, creed, religion. Whether you're a good person or not a good person, doesn't care. It comes in and kills you and sucks the life out of you in the cruelest, most unmerciful way possible that God could and would if he were sought. See, I have to have a benevolent, living God for me. For me, I'm not telling you what you need to have. I need to have a benevolent, living God because what can living gods do that dead gods can't do? They can change over time and adapt to my changing lifestyle. Just eight years ago, I was a married man. With a kid, three dogs, huge backyard. Now I'm not. <laughs> There's those facate allergies again. My next son. Anyway, <clears throat> things change. Being convinced, page 60, we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Our will is our thinking. Our life is our action. We are turning over our thinking and our action over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that and just what do we do? The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Stop right there. Some of you are making very nice money. I've made very good money in my life. Not so much now. My industry is in severe decline. It's not coming back. Some of you have had successful marriages or successful careers while you were in the food. So you look at this sentence and you say, I'm the exception. But if you were eating, were you happy? Were you everything you could have been? Did you like the way your life was going in the food? I don't think so. I don't think so. Or you wouldn't be on the line this morning. On that basis, we are almost in, always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intention, isn't it? Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. It's forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put top of 61, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Now, we are discussing the character defect of selfishness. And this selfishness was used differently in the 1930s than it is today. When I use the word selfish, picture us on a desert island and we've just been survivors of a, of a plane crash. I almost said train crash. I don't think there's too many trains in the middle of a desert island. But anyway, a plane crash. And we land on this island and we find a cache of uh, food or shelter or whatever, and I want everything for myself. That's how we think of selfishness today, and that's part of how they used it, yes. But when he talks of selfishness, he's talking about the script. He's talking about people following my script. 
back to 61. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful in trying to make these arrangements. Our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. These are all manipulative tools. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest, but as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. I might try to kiss your butt or kick your butt, but all I'm really doing is trying to manipulate you so you will do something for me that I want you to do, and I really don't give a darn how it's going to affect you. I want what I want, and we are master manipulators. We learn to be master manipulators, and we know how to find our psychophants and our codependents, don't we? What usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to, now we're going to look at self-seeking. Self-seeking is the action I take to get my way. What usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. <clears throat> Excuse me. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still the play does not see him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. Now, there's four things addicts do. They lie. They assign blame. They keep score and they fight battles that just don't exist. We do that every day. We do it so often, we don't even know we're doing it. We lie. We assign blame. We keep score and we fight battles that just don't exist. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker? Even when trying to be kind, is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world? If only he manages well. If everybody would just do what I want them to do and stick to my script, everything would be fantastic. False. False. I'm going to teach you another Yiddish expression. It is not the Yiddish word of the day. The Yiddish word of the day is ungeblosen, overblown. This is a good, this is a good phrase. Azoigetis. Azoigetis in Yiddish means it's always something. My mother looked at me 20,000 times and said, Azoigetis with you. Azoigetis with you. That means it's always something with you. It's always something. No matter how many people we get to stick to our script, wait a minute, there's people over there down the street. They're not sticking to my script, and I'm starting all over again. If all the people in the world were wearing a T-shirt that said, I love Harlan, I think Harlan is the greatest, and there was one guy in outer Mongolia that wasn't wearing an I Love Harlan t-shirt, I would fly to outer Mongolia and try to win him over. That's sick. That's this disease in its active form. That's this disease. I can't let God handle it because I'm doing so much of a better job. And in my recovery, I really don't give much of a darn who's wearing the T-shirt and who's not, because it's up to God. It's up to God who's, who likes me, who doesn't like me. Who, it, I don't have that much energy. For God's sakes, I'm tired. I don't have that much energy. <sighs> okay. 
These are, and do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not even in his best moments a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Yes. Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. He is like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation, the minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, politicians and reformers, who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave, the outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments and our self-pity. <laughs> for me. <laughs> for me. And I want you to feel sorry for me too. And I want to, I, oh, I love a well-catered pity partner party. Oh my God. Invite me to a well-catered pity party and I'm there. I don't care where the party is. I'm there. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. I was just Pure driven snow, and you came along and did me dirt. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. Let's go to page 570, if you would, with me for just a minute here. 570 in the fourth edition. If you're not in a fourth edition, I don't know where this is off the top of my head. I, I, I'm too... I'm too uh, mashuga here to think about it. Okay, I'm on page 570. Okay, in this atmosphere, do you see the sentence that starts with in this atmosphere? In this atmosphere, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself, learning to depend upon a higher power and absorb himself in his work with other alcoholics. He remains sober day by day, the days add up into weeks, the weeks into months and years. Go back to page 62. This Dr. Bauer hit the, no, hit the nail on the head. This excessive thought of self is what's killing me. It's killing me. I must think of others in a healthy way. Not in a sick, codependent, alanonic way, in a healthy way. I don't mean where I'm going to do something for you and then you're going to do 10 things for me. No, that's not what we're talking about. Page 62. So our troubles we think are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. Though he usually doesn't think so. That's the thing. See, we don't think so, but we really are. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness we must or it kills us. Stop right there. What else do you need? This selfishness, this script is causing these resentments, is causing these fears, these situations that have been driving me into the food since I was an infant and the food does the killing. God makes that possible. 
do I need any more evidence that I need to move on with the rest of the steps and move through them quickly? And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. I'm going to have to have God's aid. I can't do this by myself. B, that no human power could have relieved my alcoholism. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own willpower. We had to have God's help. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. I don't know what's best for anyone. I don't know what's best for anyone. I don't even know what's best for me. My best thinking got me to 700 pounds. My best thinking got me to 300 pounds as a junior in high school, 335 pounds as a senior in high school. My best thinking got me into poverty. My best thinking made it so that I didn't go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years old. My best thinking made me smell like a zoo. My best thinking made it so that in the city of Chicago, which at that time was the number two city in the nation before L.A. passed us up in the 70 census, there was one place where I could get a pair of pants. I bought the only pair of pants that fit me and probably wore them for like a year until they didn't fit me anymore. And I had to go to my friend and put a slat of material in there and make them into about a size 80. Next, we decided that hereafter in the drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. Now, let's explain that for those following at home. The director of a movie is the one that's in charge. He tells you, this is what you're, you're going to do, and you're, this is what you're going to do. Now, he is the principal, and we are his agents. I have a real estate license in the state of Arizona. And that means I have a fiduciary duty. That's a fun word to say, fiduciary. And what the fiduciary duty means is I am bound by law to put the needs of my client above my own. I am bound by law to do that. Now, I only do on the phone work, but, I'm, but you get the picture. The principal is the client, and the agent is the realtor or the business broker that represents them. This is the kind of relationship I have with God. He is the principal, and I am the agent. I am here to do his work, his bidding. He is the father and we are his children. Stop right there. Some of you had fathers that abandoned you. Some of you had fathers that violated you. Some of you had fathers that were not, not like what we see on TV, right? <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. But this is our heavenly father, the protector, the perfect father, the one who's there the one who loves, absolutely loves, and would never let anything happen to one of his children. That's the father we have. That's the father we're seeking here. That's the one we can choose to have. 
It's right there in our, in our grasp. That we can choose to have this if that's what we want. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch to which we passed to freedom. When we sincerely took such a position, now here are the third step promises. When we sincerely took such a position, the one we just described, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. I'm not going to perform my work well. I'm going to perform his work well. Time out for the Fakakta allergy. <sighs> Sorry. Okay. Oh, my tongue should have such allergies. Okay. His work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. You see, in my illness, I wanted to suck the marrow out of the bone of life. Now in my recovery, I want to be a contributor. I want to be able to give. And that is so foreign to my nature. I am a manipulative, self-pitying, eating taker in my illness. And in my recovery, I find myself a contributor. And this is so much better. As we felt new power flow in, we enjoyed peace of mind. We discovered we could face life successfully as we became conscious of his presence, not my presence, his presence, meaning God. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Now, I'm not a born-again Jew or a born-again Christian or a born-again anything in that sense, but in every sense, I have been reborn. In every sense that you can be reborn, I am reborn because I am not the person that I was in the illness. I'm not looking to see what I can get from you. I'm not looking to see what I can take from you. I'm looking to see how I can serve you. When I'm looking to take, there's never enough. I'm never satisfied. A zoigatus, it's always something. See how I worked that Yiddish expression in there? A zoigatus, did you notice that? Okay, good. A zoigatus, there's always going to be something. But when I'm giving, it's enough. Genug, enough. It's enough. And I feel whole. And I feel satisfied. And I don't wake up with that dread in the morning that I'm not going to get what I want. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our, said to our maker as we understood him, you can say it with me if you want to. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. Now, we just did step three. I know that the, we haven't even gotten to step Oy vey, Ismer, I just looked at the clock. We haven't even gotten to step four. I promise you I'm going to cover it. But I hope that this step three teaches us 
that step three is nothing that should take more than a few minutes. Based on the information in the ABCs, based on the information in the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism, am I a compulsive overeater? If the answer is yes, proceed to we agnostics. And in we agnostics, we learn, do I believe or am I even willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? If that's the answer is yes, what is step three? It is an agreement to go through with the rest of the steps. That's all it is. It's a decision to do four through 12. And if you've done the prayer on step three, you've taken the step, you should be walking around now with a pencil and a piece of paper. That's simple. It's nothing to overblow. It's nothing to overcomplicate. It's nothing to overthink. We love overthinking things, don't we? Because we want to get them perfect. Remember the word perfect wasn't in there. Step three should take about three, four minutes. That's all it should take. That's it, that you're done. Next, bottom of 63, we launched on a course of vigorous action the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. Now, that's a little crazy. The first step. Wait a minute. We're on the fourth step, but this is the first action step. The first two steps are conclusions of the mind. Step three is a decision. It's also a conclusion of the mind, too, but it's a decision. Now you're going to go to step four. We're going to clear it up, many of which many of us had never attempted. So our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect unless at once, how many of you are taking step three and waiting and waiting and waiting until God knows what to do step four? It says, at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor, liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. At once and next are your time frames. That means within the minute. <laughs> within the minute, you are now starting on step four. There, we're going to uncover, discover, and discard. What is step four? What is this inventory? You've all been to shopping malls, right? This is the easiest way to explain it. You've been to the shopping mall, and you want to find out where a certain store is. What do you need to know first? What does it say on the map? You are here. And until you know where you are, you don't know where you're going. This is exactly the same thing as step four. This is where you are right now. We're going to list our resentments, our fears, and our sexual harms as they are in the present moment. We're going to uncover what has been bothering us. We're going to discover things about ourselves and we're going to prepare to discard the things that are killing us. It's no more complicated than that. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It's an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One's object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods, to be rid of them promptly and without regret. What are you hanging on to? What are you afraid of letting go of? 
These resentments are killing us. The selfishness is killing us. The fear is killing us. What are we hanging on to? We're afraid of the unknown. We have a God. We have a power greater than ourselves. We're not going to be abandoned. God didn't drop you in Lake Michigan to kick your butt in Elk Street Beach. A lot of my references are Chicago. That's where I was born and raised. But God didn't drop you in Lake Michigan to kick your butt on Oak Street Beach. He's going to help you. He's going to fill you. He's going to direct you. It's going to be okay. I know. I know what it's like to bear a resentment. I get it. I know. And you're right. You can either be happy or you can be right. But usually you can't be both when, when you're in that resentment. You can be happy, but if you're going to stay in there with that resentment against Uncle Fred from 30 years ago, and he's been dead for 20 years, and he harmed you, he wronged you, and I'm going to get him, I'm going to get him, I'm going to eat raisinets before I, know, I can say two and two is four. Taking a commercial in there. Okay. One object is this. Okay. Cannot fool himself about the values. We did the same, exactly the same thing with our lives. Page 64. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. What are those flaws? The character defects. Selfishness, self-seeking, fear, dishonesty, and anger or resentment. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us. We considered its common manifestations. Now let's talk about where fear comes from and let's talk about where resentments come from. And we're going to talk, and I'm going to make it as quick as I can because I see the time too, the three basic instincts of life. Now these instincts are God-given. They are hardwired into us for our survival, not just as individuals, but for the survival of humanity as a whole, and these basic instincts are such that if you are going to take away, or I think you are, what I already have in these areas, or my ambitions for the future, I am going to become scared and angry, and I'm going to lash out at you in any way that I can. These are instincts that are hardwired into us, and the first of the basic instincts is the social instinct. Cavemen, Peking man, um, uh, I can't even think anymore, Peking man and Cro-Magnum man had this social instinct. They knew, they learned that they could work together better in groups. Joe, you stand over there with your club and you and Andy, when that wildebeest comes through, you club it over the head, and then me and Frank and Mary and Cindy over here will help you skin it, and we'll cook it up, and we'll all have a meal. We learn that we work together better when we work in groups. So we have a need to be part of that society. We have a need for that social instinct. 
or my ambitions for the future. I want to be in this other cool group over here, but Fred is blocking me. I'm going to be angry at Fred. I hope you can all see that. So we have the social instinct, and underneath the social instinct, we have self-esteem. Now, I have a hard time describing self-esteem, and the only way I know how to describe it is self-esteem is not what I think of me. It's what I think you think of me. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. If I think that you think that I'm a pretty good guy, then I'm going to like me a lot better. But if I think that you think I'm a putz, then I'm not going to like me very much. And you're going to do something to my self-esteem if you abandon me, if you reject me, if you, if you make it clear your life is better without me, it's going to, it's going to hurt my self-esteem or my ambitions for the future in that area. So we've got the social instinct. Now let's talk about the security instinct. The security instinct deals with pocketbook, with money. And all the way back to biblical times, we are taught to save a little bit of the money that comes into our, into our homes. I, like everybody, like to live one day at a time, but I hope I'm not the only person on this line with a life insurance policy. I hope I'm not the only person on this line with a little savings account. I hope I'm not the only one on this line that doesn't spend 100% of what comes into his home. And these are things we're taught over time to save a little bit for a rainy day. Thank God I live in the desert. But, okay, so we have this security instinct, pocketbook. And when you listen to a fifth step or you're doing a fourth step, the two most impactful areas are going to be romance and finance, finance and romance. These are going to be the two most impactful uh, subjects on the fourth step, finance and romance. So we have what we hold now, my job, or my ambitions for the future in the pocketbook area. Underneath security, we have emotional security. So anybody that's disturbing my emotional security, or my ambitions for the future in that area is going to make me angry. And we also have personal security. If somebody broke into your home right now and it look, they looked dangerous and they had a weapon, you would run, you would scream, you would lash out at them. Maybe you would try to hurt them because you are imbued by God with a sense of personal security. And anybody that harms that is going to make you upset. Now, the last of the three instincts, same thing, either what I hold now or my ambitions for the future, is the sex instinct. I was married for 17 and a half years. My wife came home one day in May of 2010 and said, I have fallen in love. And she was in love with a man that she met through her, through her boss at her office. And she divorced me to be with him. That was hard. Um, any female I've ever been involved with has shown me the door. Hit it, Tubby. You know, they, they may not have said those words, but that's what they were saying. Hit it, hit it, Tubby. You know, and, and that's hurtful too. So they were upsetting what I already had in that area, and anybody that upset 
what I wanted or my ambitions for the future in that area would hurt me as well, would hurt me as well. So we have the three basic instincts, the social instinct, we have the security instinct, we have the sex instinct. Not only what I hold now, it's for my ambitions for the future. Now we're going to talk a little bit about resentment and we're going to get back to the chapter. I'm trying to make this as quick as I can, Leah. Okay, now, we have this word resentment. Resentment comes from two old, old words. Neither of them are Yiddish. These two words are re, which means to do again, repaint, redo, rewrite. Re always means to do again, repeat. Sentiment comes from an old word, sentiri, which means to feel. Now, I have a recording of the Cubs winning the seventh game of the 2016 World Series in Cleveland. And if there was a test given on this recording, I would get an A. You're not going to beat me. You could tie me, but you can't beat me. I know every word the announcer is going to say. I know every commercial. I know every batter. I know every pitch. I know everything about that recording of the 2016 World Series. You cannot beat me in a test of this recording. You can't do it. You could tie me as about the best you're going to do. Now, what does that recording have that I do not have? Fidelity. Truth. Truth. I, on the other hand, have a recording of what you did to me in 1967. I have a recording of what you did to me in 1973. But my recording is not accurate. Every single time I think about those situations, I change them just a little bit, just a little bit, and I make your part a little more dastardly and my part a little more innocent until I was standing there doing nothing and you came along and you did me dirt. You did me dirt. And this is the source of my pain, to rehearse, refeel these resentments. And we love a good resentment. We water them and we fertilize them and we nurture them because we love them. What is the payoff to a resentment? I do not have to take responsibility for my own life. I can blame you. What do all addicts love to do? Assign, keep score, assign blame, lie, and fight battles that just don't exist. I can assign blame to you. That's the payoff to a resentment. That's why we love them. That's why we hang on to them. Bottom of 64. I'm going to go quickly. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we have not only been mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. 
when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. Now, here is the very simple instruction for the resentment section of your fourth step. It's going to be four columns. And it's not, you don't have to download anything. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do any of this. It's a piece of paper with four columns. Here they are. And I know in the question and answer period, there's going to be people, could you give me the four columns again? And that's okay. Here are the four columns for resentment. Column number one, who or what do I resent? It's not always a who. I have a resentment against this expression, blood is thicker than water. Because anytime somebody said, blood is thicker than water, I was left out. My parents have been dead for 40 years. My mother died 76. Her birthday would be tomorrow. But uh, my mother died in 76. My dad died in 78. They've been gone a long time. I don't have aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters. I don't have any of that. None of it. Zero. Nada. So I don't have any blood relatives in any sense of the word at all. So anytime somebody said blood is thicker than water, I was irate because I was left out. <laughs> Second column of the fourth step, resentment section, is in 19 words or less, what did they do to make you mad? You know what they did. You don't have to go look it up on Google. You've been rehearsing these resentments your entire life. Don't you tell me you can't remember this and you can't remember that. If you can't remember it, then just work past it. Just put down what you do remember. If you can't remember the person's name, put down the, the guy in the red shirt, whatever it is. Okay, so in following with my anal of my thing of blood is thicker than water, why did I resent it? It made me feel left out. I don't have to go into a whole litany and write a book. It made me feel left out. Third column, what basic instinct or instincts are affected, in my case, self-esteem. In my case, the social instinct and pocketbook, because when you're part of a family, you're usually going to inherit wealth and money, and I never did it. I could never do any of those things. The sex instinct is not involved here. Fourth column, what did you do to bring this about? And what character defects are brought to the surface? What I did to bring this about was I didn't get into recovery early enough and maybe try to find a wife and, and start my own family. Okay? First column, who or what do you resent? I resent the expression blood is thicker than water. Second column, what did they do to you? What they did to me is made me feel left out. Third column, basic instinct or instincts of life, self-esteem, security, emotional security. Fourth column, what did I do to bring it about? Didn't get into recovery early enough. Might have been able to find a wife. What character defects were brought to the surface in my reluctance to get into recovery earlier? Dishonesty, I thought I could do this myself or I just wanted to die. So there's dishonesty, selfishness, I just wanted to wake up thin one day. 
and fear. I feared the unknown. It's no more complicated than that. Four columns for resentments. Who or what do you resent? What did they do to you? 19 words or less. Third column, what instinct or instincts are involved? Fourth column, what did you do, if anything, to bring this about? Okay. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. We asked ourselves why we were angry, column two. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, column three, basic instincts, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sure we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name, our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal relations, which had been interfered with? We're only going to do Mr. Brown, or we're only going to do the first one. Mr. Brown, his attention to my wife. It affects my sex relations, self-esteem, fear. What's the fear for? See, there's more than meets the eye. If Mr. Brown is going to take away my wife, and that's what happened to me, my wife went off with this other guy. And she said, as she was divorcing me, she said, this is about money. She said, this is really about money. She says, the business went down. I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to stick around for that. He makes a lot more than you do, and he doesn't work for himself like you do. She didn't like the idea that I worked for myself. She liked the idea that this guy just got a paycheck, and that was it. And that, she left me. So <clears throat> the fear is, if his wife leaves from, with Mr. Brown, she's going to take his money. She, what are my friends going to think? What are my family going to think? What are my, what's my boss going to think? Or, you know, what are all, all these fears are going on in his head. Okay? But I think it's funny that his attention to my wife, but old Mr. Lucky Pants over here, he has a mistress. I think that's, that's, all, that's funny. Let's go to the bottom of 65. We went back through, so we have the first three columns uh, in an example here. We'll get to the fourth column in a minute. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. We were certainly flies in the spider web there, were we not? As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Oh, I got one over on you, but I'm eating Reese's peanut butter cups by the 30-pack. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. There's the understatement of the year. Ponder that for a minute. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. Was I happy when I was in resentment? You bet I was not. You bet I was not. <clears throat> to the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile, but with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave? We found that it is fatal. How many times in this chapter do they have to tell me that if I hang on to these resentments, I'm going to die in the food before they get my attention? He's telling me death, fatal, kills. And then you'll get somebody that's going to 
probably call it in the question of answer and answer period if I ever get to it, that somebody that has been delaying their fourth step or they have a sponsor that says to them, you do a step a year or a step a month or you take your fourth step and you do it for six weeks. That's insane. That's Mishagat. That's crazy. The fourth step should take about two to three hours. Cops. Cops. We all know who we resent and what they did to us. We've been rehearsing it our whole lives. We've got the fear and we've got the sex, which we'll get to in a minute. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us to drink is to die. Why do we drink again? Because of the buildup of those emotions. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. The grouch is somebody who's always mad. The brainstorm was used very differently. Today, if you say I've had a brainstorm, that means I've had an idea. The brainstorm in the 1930s was somebody who was very tempestuous in their anger, very tempestuous in their anger, but they weren't angry all the time. They were only angry intermittently. And if they were angry, they were, watch out. But when they were okay, they were okay. But when they were angry, oive is mere, watch yourself. That's the grouch in the brainstorm. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poisoned. We turn back to the list where it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us in that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. And how does it kill specifically? By driving me back into the food. The sirens are going to call me to the rocks. And the sirens are going to look beautiful on the beach, but they're Oreo cookies and they can't cure me. And they're going to trigger the allergy and I'm going to die. We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. In other words, my broken brain cannot fix my broken brain. This was our course. We realized that people who wronged us were spiritually, perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant a sick friend when a person offended. We said to ourselves, here's your sick man prayer. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Here's your sick man prayer. We avoid temptation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Referring to our list again, here's your fourth column to the resentment section, okay? The first three columns of the resentment section. Column one, who or what do you resent? Column two, what did they do to you in 19 words or less? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are involved? Column four, what did you do to bring this about? and what character defects were brought to the surface. Now, let's take a look. Referring to our list again, 
putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely, resolutely means with purpose, look for our own mistakes. Uh-oh, this is the first time I've ever done that. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened, though a situation had not been entirely our fault? We tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. Column four, what did you do to bring the resentment about and what character defects were brought to the surface? We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Column one, who, did you, who do you resent or what? Column two, what did they do to you? 19 words or less. Column three, what instinct or instincts are involved? Column four, what did you do to bring this about? What character defects were brought to the surface? And on to the next one. Now, I want to talk about something. I know I'm way over time, but this needs to be said. There are people listening to this recording or our live as I'm doing it here that have deep-seated resentment that they did nothing to bring about. Some of the people that are listening to this have been violated in horrible ways by people sometimes when they were children or when they were defenseless. Some of you have been raped. Some of you have been molested. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have been victimized by cruelty that you did nothing to bring about. On behalf of the human race, I'm sorry. <clears throat> you would put DNA in the fourth column, does not apply. There better not be too many DNAs, but you put DNA in that fourth column, does not apply. Now, it's time to let it go. It's time to give it to God. It's time to move into the sunlight of the Spirit. And there are people that have had you by the yang-yang and they've been dead in the cemetery for decades. Time to let them go. Leave retribution to God. Live your life. Most of the adults I knew as a child came from the concentration camps the DP camps, which stands for Displaced Persons Camps in Europe. Most of them had numbers on their arm that were put there by the Nazis. And many of them, many of them would grab my face when I was a little boy and they would say, live until you die. Live until you die. Good advice. 
I have to be unshackled from these resentments, unshackled by my urge to get even with these people. I have to be unshackled and emancipated from a desire to get even with them in order to live until I die because for me to eat is to die. It's time. Time to let it go. Bottom of 67. Notice that the word fear is bracketed along the difficulties with Mr. Brown. Mrs. Jones, the employer and the wife, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve, but did not we ourselves set the ball rolling. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. We reviewed our fears thoroughly, top of 68. We put them on paper. Here is the four columns for the fear inventory. Here's the four columns. First column, who or what do you fear? Second column, why do you fear it? 19 words or less, please. Third column, what basic instinct or instincts are involved? Fourth column, what did you do to bring it about and what defects were brought to the surface? Now, I'm going to do it one more time because they are identical to the resentment columns. I'm going to let you go back to the resentment and just see your notes on that. In the fear inventory, first column, who or what do you fear? Second column, why do you fear it? 19 words or less, please. Now, where am I getting this 19 words or less from? I'm getting it from the example that Bill has for us in, on the fourth step. That's where I'm getting it from. It's on page 65. Okay, that's where the, the 19 words or less comes from. Third column, what basic instinct or instincts are involved? Fourth column, what did you do to bring the fear about? And what defects of character were brought to the surface? You don't have to download anything. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to wait 10 years to do it. You don't have to wait 20 years to do it. You can be done with your fourth step in a matter of a few hours. And you can be on your fifth step the next minute, the next day, the next minute. There's no reason that this should take more than a few hours. None at all. Perhaps there's a better way, we think so, for we are now on a different basis, trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite self. I'm on 68. We are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do as we, his. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? One of the most beautiful promises in the book. Calamity with serenity. I love it. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it's the way of strength, the verdict of the ages. 
is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We let him demonstrate through us what he can do. Preach the gospel. And if you must, use words. Show people what God has done for you. Go out into the world and demonstrate through your action what God has done for you. And there will be no greater calling. There will be no greater mitzvah. There will be no greater commandment than to do that, to show God, to show people, excuse me, what God has done for you. This is as old as time. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be at once. We commence to outgrow fear. Now about sex, and we're going to talk about the sex inventory, and we're going to use five columns. Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity, appropriation. That we, then we have voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? Now, when we talk about sex, what we're talking about is harming people through the sex instinct. In other words, are you using your God-given sex prowess for something other than what it was intended for? Are you in a committed relationship and, and you're cheating? That's one form. And now unless you're polyamorous and you've established that with your partner, then you're fine. If you're in a polyamorous relationship and this is what's understood, that's great. For me, I'm just talking about for me, I cannot be working the steps while I'm breaking the Ten Commandments. I can't do that. It's not congruent in my mind. I can't do it. But cheating is just one thing. And again, as I say, if you're in a polyamorous or open relationship, then that's fine. I, I'm, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to, you know, whatever. That's fine. But am I using sex for something other than what it was intended? In other words, am I using my sex powers to control or manipulate another person? Am I leading them on because I want a free dinner? Am I leading them on so that I can get a promotion at work? Am I leading them on for something other than what it was intended for? Now, this is my opinion. It's not God. It's not OA's opinion or AA's opinion or whatever. I believe that sex, the sex powers we have or the sex we have is so that we could enjoy it or, and or we can, pro, we can recreate our, you know, we can have babies. I'm not saying you should only have sex when you want to have a baby. You can enjoy it. And if it's two consulting adults, two consenting adults, that's fine. God bless you. I, I love it too as far back as I can remember. It's been a long time. But the bottom line is if I'm using it for something else, 
Am I using it to get even with another person? Maybe a person has rejected me, so I'm seducing their friend because I know it will hurt them. Maybe I'm in a committed relationship and I'm making demands on that person that they really don't want me to make. Maybe I'm in a committed relationship and they've asked me to do something and I've been reluctant to do it because I'm thinking only of myself. Am I using sex for something other than what it was intended for? Those are the things we want to look at. We reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Column one in the sex inventory, who did you hurt? This will always be a who. Unless you're in a relationship with an inanimate object, this will always be a who. Column one, who'd you hurt? Column two, what'd you do to them? 19 words or less, please. What did you do to them? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts were involved? Column four, what defects of character within you caused you to harm them in what you did in column two? I'll explain that again. In column five, what should you have done instead? So we're going to use five columns for the sex. Column one, who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them or refrain from doing? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are involved? Very seldom will it be the sex instinct. Very seldom. Column four, what defects of character were brought to the surface in you that caused you to harm them? Column five, what should you have done instead? Now, this is the last time I'm going to go through this, and I know it's going to come up, but I'm going to go through that one more time. Column one, who did you hurt? Column two, what did you do to them? Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are involved? Column four, what defects of character were brought up in you that caused you to harm them? Column five, what should you have done instead? <clears throat> In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. I write down my sexual ideals, and I have people do that that I sponsor as well. That does not mean I want her to have blonde hair, I want her to be five foot two, I want, no, that's not what we're talking about here. The sexual ideal is what characteristics within you are you going to strive to achieve to bring into your next relationship? What epiphanies have you had? What did you learn and how are you going to work toward those things to bring into your next relationship? <sighs> we subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remember always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be, nor to be despised and loathed. 
It's okay to have a sexual appetite. It's okay to want to have sex. And just because you've had sex with a person does not mean you've harmed them. We're talking about harms done other people. You don't even have to take your clothes off to harm them. Maybe you led them on because they were your supervisor at work. So you led them on knowing that they were attracted to you because you wanted to further your career, which is the security instinct. You were flirtatious with them knowing that you had no interest in them whatsoever, that nothing was going to come of it. But you were flirtatious with them because you tried to further your career. Maybe you were flirtatious with them only because you wanted to get a rise out of them and you wanted to stroke your own ego. These are ways we hurt other people in this area without even taking our clothes off. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, bottom of 69, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem in meditation. We ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. If we want it. You have to want the right answer. And in many cases, it's going to be an answer you don't want to hear. Are you sure you're ready for that? Are you sure you're ready for that? Because if you're not, you're going to eat again. It is a certainty. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with other persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. It's not an amends if you're continuing to do it. We don't apologize to the Constitution. We amend the Constitution. And by amending the Constitution, we change it. If I tell my wife, who I don't have, but let's just say for the sake of argument, I do have one. I come home and I say to my wife, I'm sorry I have been cheating on you. And I continue to cheat. I am going to eat. It is a certainty. It is only an amends if I change my behavior. It is only an amends if I am willing to let God take me to better things. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. Once more, we're taught that when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day.
if we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot, we have listed and analyzed our resentments, we have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. In other words, they are of no use whatsoever and they will kill me. Are you sure you want to hang on to that resentment? Are you sure you want to hang on to that hurt? Because it's not only of no value, it's going to kill you. Remember what Dr. Silkworth said, that this is an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. Remember what we learned, that this is a progressive, fatal illness. It is permanent. It is progressive. It is fatal. Remember what, what Sam Shoemaker teaches us. One of the impediments to God is a resentment that we will not let go of. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. Now, there are some wrongs you cannot right. There are some things you just can't do. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision, step three, and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, step four, you have made a good beginning. I'm going to come back to that before we turn it loose for questions. That being so, you have swallowed a, digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Before I turn this loose for questions, I want to look at this thing. It says you've made a good beginning. And one of the reasons that step four seems to be so troublesome for people is they do the step and their lives are still not perfect. You can do all the steps 10,000 times and your life isn't going to be perfect. You do the steps. You test God. You see where he fails. You see where he's lacking. I bet you can't. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be catapulted immediately into a fourth dimension of existence. What it means is it is time to do five, take an hour off, and then six through 12 every day for the rest of your life, 10, 11, and 12, for the rest of your life and begin your rest of your uh, amends. That's what it means. There is nothing in this book that says now that you're done with your fourth step, life is going to be perfect. There's nothing in this book that says now that you've done your fourth step, you're going to get what you want. What it says is you've made a good beginning. Keep going. Now, before I turn it over to Leah, there's two types of questions I do not take. Please don't ask me what my food plan is. What do you care what my food plan is? I'm a 64-year-old man. You may be a 37-year-old woman. My food plan isn't going to help you. You need your food plan. And number two, I do not take food questions. With that, I will pass. I'm sorry I ran so far over time, Leah, and we're ready to open it up. Thank you so much, Harlan, for this 
fabulous presentation this morning. Instructive, insightful, thorough. Thank you so very, very much. The share ID for this morning's presentation, 11,892. That's 11892. Harlan's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question and answer segment. Please address questions only to Harlan. You can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Please give us your first name, first letter of your last name as well. Kathy K. Kathy K. Ginger K. Ginger C. Sima M. Sima M. Sharon C. Sharon C. Terry K. Terry K. Who else has a question? Or one to unmute. Thus far, I have Kathy K, Ginger C, Sima M, Sharon C, and Terry K. Did I miss anybody? Lisa B. Lisa B. Okay, that's a great group. Let's begin our questions with Kathy K, please. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Harlan. It was terrific to hear you today. I am going back in my mind to what you said early on in your talk about perfectionism and how that can really get in the way of recovery, and I've certainly seen it in my own recovery. I want to ask you, how do you make decisions when you're working with sponsees um, when they are unwilling to be thorough about their work? Um do you accept that some is better than nothing? Or no. You... Yeah, no. okay. If you're unwilling to do the work, goodbye. See ya. No, I don't, I don't play those games anymore. No, I played them 20 years ago, 25 years ago. You either want to do this or you don't. And I know that this is going to sound hard. And I, it's, this is really something that I've learned from Chapter 7. If you're unwilling to do any of it, goodbye. Read page 96, and okay. on page 96, it answers the question, and it answers it in a, in a way that is better than I could ever answer it in a million years. It says, you are sure to find some ointment, not that. Uh, if you leave such a person alone, he, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover by himself. I'm going to let the Oreo cookies be my convincer. So if you are unwilling to do any of this, See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, Kathy. Good to hear your voice, too. Take care. You're welcome. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for your question. Ginger C., you're next. Oh, good morning, Melanie. Uh, Ginger C., recovered compulsive overeater in Colorado. And Harlan, thank you so much for your amazing service that you always continue to show a day at a time. And I love the impediments to God. It was the beginning that really got my attention in Virginia Beach, and I'm so glad that you keep sharing those. Um, my question to you is, do you think someone that's in the food that's actively eating, do you think they can get off the elevator early before it crashes? It depends on them. It depends on what they're going to do. 
Um, I believe that willingness is a highly overrated concept in our program. And I believe that you have to have been beaten down enough. You have to have been bludgeoned. I mean, beaten to the point where your own mother wouldn't recognize you. And when you have been beaten to that degree by the fruit, you will stop. And you probably won't stop a minute before. So I believe that you're either going to do this or you're not. And sadly, some of us are not going to do it. Some of us are going to have to die so that others can live. Some of us are going to become cautionary tales. And, 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 and I wish that that was not the case. I wish we had a program that everybody would work. I wish we had the kind of situation where we could be willing for you, but we don't. And the food is very hard to leave because the food is a lover and a friend and a confidant. And it's very difficult to leave that. That's why we have a chapter that gives us our name, A Vision for You. What, why is the chapter of Vision for You written? What is the history behind A Vision for You? A Vision for You is a picture of your life before there was Snapchat, before there was Google, before there was text messages and all these other things. It is a picture of your life without the food. And to show you how great life can be. But you cannot convince somebody of that until they become free of that food. So that's the only answer I have. I wish I had another one. I wish to God I had another answer. But I don't think that there's any other answer than that one. Thanks, Ginger. Thank you. Thank you, Ginger C. Sima M., you're next. Your question, please, for Harlan. Okay. This is Sima M. Hello. Your question is for Harlan. Okay. Um, Thank you, Harlan. Uh, It's great to hear you every time I hear you. Uh, I'll be quick. My question is this, and it's been on on my mind for quite a while. Um, You said it today. Mm Self-seeking. Where do you get the definition that self-seeking is what I what I do in order to bring about what I want. Okay. Let's go back to page um, 61. Let's go back to page 61. What usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He, He decides to exert himself more. These are actions that I'm taking. I exert myself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still the play does not suit him, admitting he may be somewhat at fault. He is sure other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker, even when trying to be kind? And that's where I get the definition, right out of page 61. These are the actions that I'm taking to try to get my way, and that is the self-seeking. Seeking is an action word. A self-seeker 
is a seeker or a looker or a hunter for themselves? And that's where I get the answer is on page 61. Thank you so much. You're welcome. No problem, Simon. Good to hear have your a, voice ha- this morning. Happy Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Rosh Hashanah Tova to you too. Rosh Hashanah Tova to you too. Thanks so much, Sima. Sharon C., your question. Hi, it's Sharon C. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay. I want to thank you so much, Harlan. That was just wonderful. Um, I have a, well, what, my first question real quick is, what are some, some wrongs we cannot make right? For in, Just for an example. Okay. Let's say I harm somebody and they're dead. Oh, okay. Let's say I harm somebody and I can't find them. Let's say I harm somebody and their life took twists and turns so that that cannot be uh, righted. I'll give you an example. Um, many, many years ago, when, uh, not, well, I would say at least 15 years ago, I think I was still in Oregon at that time, so maybe it was even longer. But anyway... I had a situation where a person owed an amend, and the amend that they owed was that they told a wife that the husband was sleeping with his wife. In other words, the guy that was coming to the wife, he was, the, he was married to the other part of this affair. And the wife knew nothing of it until he told her. They got divorced. Uh, Years went by in courts. They owned a business together. And their lives were irreparably damaged by this information. Now, I don't know where this affair would have gone. But there are some wrongs you can never fully right. Maybe the person's dead. Maybe the person is whatever. You know, it's, it's whatever it is, it is. So that is what we're talking about there. That is what we're talking about. I hope that explains it. Thank you, Sharon C. Terry K. Your question, please. Terry K. Did you call for Terry K? I did. Hey, good morning to you. Your oh, question for her. Harlan. I was you a, betcha. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thanks for your talk, Harlan. I really enjoyed it. Um, are you able? Are you able to uh, expound upon your your own personal spiritual awakening? My own spiritual awakening. Oh, we'd be here for a long time. I'll try to put it in, in as succinct a term as possible. In order for me to have a spiritual awakening, I had to quit playing God. And I had to quit making quid pro quo deals with God. Quid pro quo is Latin for you do this and I'll do that. What I wanted to do more than anything was I wanted God to show his hand first. And when he showed me a girlfriend, when he showed me thinness, when he showed me wealth, when he showed me his hand, then I would be willing to believe in him and do his bidding. 
that worked about as well as a lead balloon. All I got out of that was fatter and fatter and fatter. I came in here and I didn't I didn't grasp it at first. It took me a long time. But little by little by little by little, I had to ask myself this question. Is my life run my way on self-will worth living? And the answer was no. My life based on my self-will, on my self-pity, on my own uh, uh, power was a terrible life that I wouldn't wish on anybody. I had nothing. I was spiritually bankrupt. I absolutely had absolutely nowhere to turn. And I had to do the one thing that I had not really tested, and that is work these steps. And the more I worked them, the more I found that if I was working them, my life got better. And if I was working them and they were that difficult, I was doing it wrong. And if I worked them and I was taking too much time, I wasn't getting any results. I had to work them, I had to embrace them, and I had to form a God that was personal to me. I had to let go of the God that was forced upon me as a child that I never believed in, that I never believed loved me, and I had to create a new God. And I had to be desperate enough to say yes instead of no. I had to be desperate enough to say I will instead of I won't. And when I did that, life got better, but it never got perfect. I've been doing this for a long time. I wish I had more money than I have. That's we all do. I wish I was married. I'm not. I wish I had a hammer. I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the afternoon. I'd hammer all over this land. I wish I had a lot of things. I wish I had another chance to go back to being seven years old again and do a lot of things different with the knowledge that I've acquired. But I don't. And I'm living until I'm dying. I'm living until I'm dying. And that's my life. That's how I came to it. And that's, that's, as, that's as short of an answer as I could give you. But thanks for the question, Terry. Yes, thank you, Terry Kay, for the question. Lisa B., your question, please. <clears throat> Lisa B. Hello, can I be heard? You can. Okay, I'm taking myself off speaker. Um, Harlan, it was so wonderful to hear you. Thank you so much for your experience, strength, and hope. My question is something I think you may have sort of already answered before, but you you were mentioning in the sex inventory piece that you don't make amends where you would still where you do more harm. Can you give an example of that? I know you did an example before. Of okay. Things you, oh, All right. Thank you. Thank you. We, we weren't really talking about step eight and nine, but I'll give you the classic example of Ernie G. Now, the reason that we have in ninth step uh, made direct amends to such people except when to do so would injure them or others is because of Ernie G. Now, Ernie G came into the Oxford group in 1935. And he came in in September of 35 
just as Bill Wilson was leaving for New York and Bill was staying with the Smiths in their home uh, on Ardmore Street in Akron. And Ernie G. and his wife came in, and they stayed with the Smiths. And you talk about the willingness to go to any lengths. Dr. Bob and his wife were bastions of service. You should go to that house and see how small it really is. And to have house guests all the time is a burden on the family and a burden on them. It's a small little house. Don't be fooled by the fact that he's a doctor. It's a very modest little house on Ardmore Street in Akron. Now, Ernie G. was a philanderer. He, he had many affairs on his wife, many affairs. But she knew about it, and she got tired of it. And she said, screw him. I'm going to have my own affair. I'm young. I'm attractive. I'm going to have my own affair. So she did. And she took up with somebody in Akron, and she had her own fling. And now all these women in the Oxford group, because she, she ended it. She, she didn't feel too good about this now. And she ended it. And these women in the Oxford group are telling her, you've got to tell Ernie what you did. See, he didn't know about it. So she says, well, okay. And she goes and she tells him. He took a knife out of the drawer of the Smith home. The Smiths were out shopping. And he chased his wife with a knife, trying to kill her. And the Smiths came home from the store, and he tried to take the knife and stab Ann Smith, who was protecting his wife. And Dr. Bob had to physically restrain him. And he ended up in a mental institution in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is where he was from. And they shipped Ernie back to Ypsilanti, Michigan, put him in a mental institution. So the lesson here is that sometimes by making amends to people, you are going to hurt them. And we don't have the right to hurt another person. If a person doesn't know of an affair or a person doesn't, is, is going to be negative. I have other instances. I don't want to take up time. But Ernie G. is the classic example, and that's why specifically it says in the ninth step, except when to do so would injure them or others. It's because of Ernie G. So I hope that explains it. His wife made amends to him for something that he didn't know about, and he went crazy. Now, the end of the story with Ernie is this. Dr. Bob died in 1950 in Akron, and his two children, Susan and, and Bob, were at the funeral, and Susan says to Bob, there's Ernie. And Ernie had gone into the Oxford group back in Toledo, Ohio, heard that Dr. Bob had died and came to the funeral, and Bob and Susie knew how pleased their parents would be, and Ann Smith had died the year before, that Ernie was sober because Dr. Bob always had a very soft spot in his heart for Ernie. Now, there's another Ernie G that married Dr. Bob's daughter. There's two Ernie G's, so it's hard to kind of keep them separate in our mind. There's another Ernie G that married Dr. Bob's daughter, and his famous line was, it's hard to give your daughter to somebody whose fourth step you've listened to. So, but I hope that explains it, Lisa, that, that sometimes these amends can, the best thing I could tell you about the ninth step is 
counsel with a recovered sponsor is the best source of information we have. Do not make self-decisions as whether or not you should or should not make an amend. Consultation with a recovered sponsor here is absolutely paramount. And I hope that Thanks. answers it. Good deal. Thanks, Lisa B., for the question. Does anyone else have a question this morning for Harlan? Bonnie B. Bonnie B. Gina R. Gina R. Melinda H. Melinda H. Jenny S. Jenny S. This will be probably our last opportunity for questions today, so if it's on your mind, please press star one. Jody EQ. Roz G. Roz G. Sharon C. Sharon C. Going once. Leslie W. Leslie W. Going twice. Take a deep breath. Star one. Fran. Fran F. Going three times. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks so much, everyone. I have Bonnie B, Gina R, Melinda H, Jenny S, Jody EQ, Roz G, Sharon C, Leslie W, and Fran F. Good morning to you, Bonnie B. Your question, please, this morning for Harlan. Good morning, and thank you for your service. Harlan, thank you for yours and the research that you have done uh, both within your own personal life and the history of our um, uh, our program. <clears throat> I, uh, I, used, I was a little Catholic kid, and um, one of the things we got told at the age of seven before we made our very first confession is that it had to be a perfect act of contrition at seven. And um, I was terrified because I didn't know what the hell perfect meant, but uh, otherwise I think I was going to hell, and that didn't sound like a good job either. So with that in my background, I have been plagued by that word, and you have you know, consistently said throughout your talk and others have, get rid of the conception of perfection. Perfectionism mm -hmm. gets in the way. And mm -hmm. then I hear you say that if people come to you and they just can't let go of one thing or something else, which to me means they aren't perfect, uh, you wish them well, glad you aren't them. Can you help me mm -hmm. understand you? Yes. You're either willing to do this or you're not. And when these questions are presented to me, you're talking about people that are not willing to give up the food or you're, they're not willing to make certain amends. I can't deal with that. I cannot deal with that. The book is very clear. So if you're unwilling to do the program, I cannot waste time with you. I cannot and will not hurt you that way. It hurts you if I'm going to waste time with you. I have to let you go and let you to your own devices and let the Oreo cookies convince you or not. But when it comes to your fourth step, there's nothing in there about perfect. If you miss the resentment that you had against Uncle Louie and it comes to you a year later, that's why we have step 10. That's a different concept than unwillingness. 
So instead of perfection, why don't you think of it as willingness versus unwillingness or action versus inaction? Some people, they will go into action and they will do their fourth step, but the fourth step isn't perfect. I can deal with that. But some people are still eating. They haven't taken the action of putting the food down yet. I'm not going to deal with that. If you do not take that action, I'm leaving the word willingness out of it. If you, can't, if you won't take that action of putting the food down, then there's nothing we can do for you. There's nothing in these steps that says you continue eating while you work them. So divorce yourself from the word perfection and think of it as action taking and not action taking. And I think that should clear it up for you. I hope Thank it helps. You. You're welcome, Bonnie. Thank- Thank you, Bonnie B. Gina R., your question for Harlan, please. Thanks, Melanie, and thanks, Leah, wherever you are. Hi, Harlan. This is Gina R., your neighbor down in Green Valley, Arizona. <laughs> Hi, Gina. Um, I'm oh, usually 10 degrees lower than you. Um, yes, you're lucky. On page 69, um, it on the last full paragraph, it says, we treat sex as we would any other problem. One of the things that's um, really uh, kind of been opening up for me uh, around this is focusing on the um, shaping a sane and sound ideal mm-hmm. and applying that to all my other relationships, not just sex relationships. And I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. is that something you do or have done or mm-hmm. considered? And if you could give when us an I example. First in, yes, when I first came into program, I had never been on a date before with a girl. Never. I had never had sex. I was a virgin. And I came in at 24, and I wasn't to, to go on my first date with a girl till I was 35. I was, if I knew that I was 11 years away from going on my first date, I probably would have cut my own throat or something. I don't know how I would have reacted. Thank God I didn't know. But when I first did my first fourth steps, um, I had never been on a date with a girl in my life. So I had to look at my friendships. I had to look at my other relationships. Was I in a relationship with somebody because of what I thought I could get out of them? Or was I really attracted to them as a friend? Did I really want to be friends with this person? Or was I hoping to glean some influence? Was I hoping to use that friend to further my career or my life or whatever that may have been? So definitely it applies unilaterally to all relationships in my life. And what was I doing with those relationships? How was, I, how was I cultivating those relationships? Was it just a matter of manipulation or was there true friendship there? And that's what I had to look at. So that was all I had to look at because, again, as I say, I didn't go on my first date with a girl till I was 35. There's not a lot of girls out there who will go out with a 500-pound man. I'm sorry, they just won't. If I had been afflicted with alcoholism or drug addiction or gambling or something else, I'm sure I would have had you know, quite a number of girlfriends because I'm not a bad guy. But when you're, when you're a fatso, <laughs> they won't look at you twice. So trust me, I had to look at all my other relationships 
before a long time before I could look at intimate relationships. Yes. So the answer to your question is yes, I look at them, and that's specifically how. I use the big book instruction and the sexual ideal to measure up to those things. Yes, I did. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. I hope that answers it. Thank you, Gina R. Melinda H., your question, please. Oh, thank you so much. I think my question's already been answered, but um, I guess somewhere along the way, I might have gotten the idea that unless I'm, like, hospitalized and on my deathbed because of the overeating that I've done, that I'm not going to be able to get recovered. But I think what I'm hearing now is that as long as I'm willing to do the work, you know, not resist anything, as long as I'm willing to do the work, that I can recover. Question asked and answered. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I can't even, I can't even insult that answer with anything of my own. You answered it perfectly. Thank you. Thank you, Melinda. <laughs> thank you, Melinda H. Jenny S., your question, please. Yes, thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Harlan. Um, Harlan, I've heard you use the words buildup of human emotion. And mm-hmm. can you tell me uh, where those words are in the big book? Or They're not. Where did you get that? They're not where in the big book. I, I stole them unshamedly from Clancy Emerson, who spoke here in uh, Scottsdale twice. And he spoke about the buildup of human emotions as being the problem, that liquor was not the problem. And I asked Clancy if I could steal that from him. He said, if I paid him $10, I could. But he didn't take my $10. But he said I could. But no, th- those words are not in the big book, but it is absolutely true that the problem is not the food. Food was only a symbol. It says in the big book many times, alcohol was only a symptom. Bottles were only a symbol. It talks incessantly about the fact that we want the effect produced by food. And that effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. But if you look at the logic, it is sound logic. Sound logic. That these, that these emotions will build to a point where eating becomes a step up from where you are. You cannot stand that pain any longer. The pain is too much to bear. And so we eat in search of relief from that pain. And that relief comes in the form of the food, but it only lasts about 10 seconds. Because of the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter as described in Chapter 3, we cannot remember what the food does to us. We can only focus in on what the food does for us, and it gives us that effect. So I hope that answers it, and if there's a problem with it, you call Clancy Emerson, who's the senior member of AA, and tell him, Clancy, I don't know about you anymore, and he'll, he'll fight it out with you. But that's where I got that from, was from Clancy. Thank you, Jeannie S. Jody EQ, your question, please. Jody EQ. Good morning, uh, everybody, and thank you so much, Harlan, for your talk. You're welcome, Jody. Always, as usual, fantastic. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm on step nine again. I've done it 
more than once, and um, I've made some botched amends. I have um, not done amends for fear that I'm going to cause harm. It's kind of a tricky thing for me to know when to do them and when not. I heard you say, you know, be sure to consult I would, with a recovered sponsor. I would suggest consulting with a recovered sponsor. And I would suggest that as a way of getting out of yourself because a solitary self-appraisal proved insufficient. And I think that counsel with somebody who's recovered will help you tremendously because it will give you that a person that has objectivity in the matter that you, you won't have. You won't have objectivity because you were involved in it. That other person has objectivity. So the, and Jody, uh, all I could say is Counsel with a recovered sponsor is the way to go on this. Okay. I hope that answers it. Yeah. Jody's one of those people that gets up as early as I do <laughs> morning for the morning. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you, Jody. Thank you. Thank you. Roz G, your question, please. Good morning, Harlan. Thank you very much. I love your talk. Good morning, Roz. I listen to them all the time. All right. My question is. And maybe you answered this, but I didn't get it. Um, That's okay. When you when you feel guilty about stuff you've done, mm -hmm. what do you do to take the steps to relieve that guilt, that horrible step, guilt? Step you ten feel? is what. Step ten is where everything begins. Step ten, I run right to that. Number one, number two, step eleven, and number three, step nine. If I have done something that I feel guilty about, chances are excellent excellent that I'm going to need to do a step nine. So it goes 10, 11, 10, and 9, and then 11 at night. And by the way, there's something else I, I forgot to mention, and this has nothing to do with your question. I cannot on my call, I, on my phone, take international calls. I, on my, the only country I can take calls from, I think, is Canada, but I'm on uh, one of those uh, a major carrier, it's not an unknown carrier, but I can't take calls from like Europe and Australia and all these other places. So if I don't call you back, it's because I can't, um, but I'm because I'm getting an international call right now and I, I can't call the person back. But anyway, Roz, I hope that answers it. I go right to 10 and if I own amends, I go right back to 9. And we will ask Carlin for his contact information at the conclusion of this meeting, so you might want ah might want to have pen and paper handy for that. Sharon C, yes, your yes. question. You're next, Sharon C. Hello, this is Sharon C. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Harlan, so much. Um, I'm actually getting a second chance here. Um, it, real quick, I don't know if this. Uh, I I was had a lot of neutrality around the food, and it, at the time. It was really strange, and it was something I've never had in my life. It was fantastic, and I wasn't sure even what it was, and it was like a miracle. It was Anyway, not so much now. Um, it seems to, you know, I'd love to get back to that, and I'm, I can't mm -hmm. seem to get back to that. You're not working enough with other people, and you're not doing 10s, 11s, and 12s. It, it, it goes back to you may have to go rework the steps, you may have stopped your activity, so you may be dieting with food support. But when you're fighting food again and you're feeling yourself lured in, you either have to go all the way back to one, which is more likely going to help you the most, or you haven't been doing your 10s, 11s, and 12s. So I would suggest strongly going back to step one 
reworking everything, but you have to stay in 10, 11, and 12. You have to stay in 10, 11, and 12, or the, or the urge to eat is going to come back. This is a permanent disease, and it gets worse over time. It does not get better. Right. Okay. Um, if I may say, I know there's not much time. I have a sponsor right now. I'm in step 12 again. Uh, again and again. Um, Doesn't sound to me like you're doing 10s and 11s. Well, that's what I was just going to say. You need to rework the steps. Something is not here. You should not be working with other people if you haven't had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. You need to rework things from the beginning. Okay. Well, I had a spiritual awakening, but it's it's dissipated. And I think she doesn't believe in doing step 10 the way that I was taught. And I'm so not going to comment on that, or I'm going to get in trouble. You oh, I don't mean she. Con- I didn't mean that. I, oh man, okay. you draw your. I'm, I'm not going to get into that. You draw your own conclusions as to what you need to do. I have to seek that spiritual help from somebody who adheres to the big book. And if it's not in the big book, I am free to ignore it. Thank and you I very need a much. recovered sponsor. I need somebody who goes right out of the book. And people who start altering and start, you know, all this other stuff, that's not for me. That is absolutely not for me. So you draw your own conclusions based on how you know I would answer that question. Thank you so much, Sharon C. Thanks, Sharon. Leslie W., your, yeah. Leslie w., your question, please. Leslie W., you're up. Can you hear me, Melanie? I can hear you mm-hmm. now. Yes, perfectly. Good, good okay. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, Harlan, thank you so much for today. Um, your service is um, just um, so inspiring to me um, and your story. <sighs> I just wanted to ask, and I hope this question hasn't already been asked. If it has, forgive me. Um, do you think it's beneficial in your in your experience to um, do fourth steps uh, repeatedly? I know some people in program do do them year after year. Um, do you think there's that's beneficial, or do you think it's? I, I think that at, at times you have to kind of pull things out. I have a sponsor that lives in West yeah. Los Angeles, California. And he often has to tell me things I don't want to hear. And in the aftermath of a relationship that had gone awry a number of years ago, he made me do another one. He made me do another one on my divorce. He made me do another one on, I don't remember, he made me do another one on something. I don't remember what it was. And I... I put an old-fashioned uh, Mayan curse on him, but he seems to still be alive, thank God. And uh, I, I, I sometimes found it don't beneficial. I found it tremendously <laughs> beneficial. It was yeah. just, it was just cathartic. It was wonderful. Yeah. It was okay. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. No problem. Thank you, Leslie W. And our last question today will come from Fran F. Fran, ask your question, please. Uh, can you hear me? 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Hi. Um, hi, Harlan. Thank you so much for, for your share. Uh, your services is just incredible. My question, you might have just answered my question with the last one. Um, I had done the fourth step and in my ninth step amends and uh, living in 10, 11, and 12. And I wasn't given the opportunity to do uh, one of my amends um she just wouldn't, I, I attempted several times uh, to my sister and she just wouldn't accept um, me meeting with her. Um, and I've prayed on it and um, uh, my sponsor just said, leave it in God's time. But I'm starting to develop more and different resentments since the original Ford step. I'm, I'm adding more to it and part of me is saying, I don't even know if I'm willing to want to even do the amends anymore. Um, so I don't know which way would you. Well, I would think that you, you really need to look at your fourth step here. But the other thing I would remind you of is there's nothing in the big book that says the other person is required to listen to your amends. They have the right to tell you they don't want to hear it. And it says we pocket our pride and go to it when we can, but Otherwise, we just stand at the ready to make the amends if the situation should come up. They don't have to accept my amends. They don't have to let me make the amends. And, you know, there's nothing in the big book that says when I make amends to you that you have to react the way I want you to react. There is nothing in this book that says here's the script for them to follow. And this is pure, unadulterated selfishness on my part if I think you should or shouldn't do something. I don't know what's going on in the other person's mind. I don't know what this person is thinking. What if I took for a minute and said, this person is so hurt by me that being with me to hear the amends is going to cause them pain. Do I want to inflict pain on someone I purport to love? Do I want to inflict pain on somebody that I purport to want to make amends to? Absolutely not. So what I will do with a person like that is I will be at the ready if things change to make the amends should the opportunity come up. You know, I made amends to a lot of people that received them and, and they, they, they were very gracious about it. I made amends to some people that, you know, okay, you owe me money. Where's my money? Okay, so I had to pay them or I paid them out. You know, in some cases I had the money to pay them in one check. In some cases not, I had to pay them out. But they didn't like me much before. They don't like me much now. That's okay. But I have to trust God enough to say there are some people that are going to not react the way I want them to and that that's okay. I don't know what's going on in the heart of another person. But to let it kill me, is that what I'm going to do? Did I come this far to let let that kill me now? So, Fran, I hope that answers the question. But really and truly, I don't know what's going on with another human being. And I'm not going to sit here and say, you need to react a certain way. And when I need to, I will go back and I will reread pages 60, 61, and 62, where it talks about selfishness and the script. 
because what I am is I'm suffering from the delusion that if this person would just accept my amends, that I would be catapulted into some Valhalla, some utopia. And that's not true. Simply not true. Okay, I hope that answers it, Fran. Thank you, Fran <clears throat> S. And that does conclude this portion of our meeting. And thank you all that asked questions today. It's going to add so much to the helpful, useful teaching that will be that has been recorded and will be archived here today. And that share ID number for this particular recording is 11892. That's for Sunday, September 9th. You can revisit it again on our website at www.avisionforyou.info or by phone 712-432-5203. Wish with a conference identification of 876148 pound. Thank you so much, Harlan, for this particular You're very teaching. welcome. My what a great, pleasure. Yeah, you betcha. What a great addition for teaching for those to come. Um, we will ask Harlan for his contact information after the conclusion okay. of this meeting. So let's conclude this meeting with okay. the way that we always do by reading page 164 of our big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find. And join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep 